This is Catalog and Cocktails, presented by Data.World. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Catalog and Cocktails. It's Wednesday once again. Catalog and Cocktails is presented by Data.World, the enterprise data catalog for the modern data stack. We're coming to you from uh, Austin, Texas, as well as somewhere else. You'll find out in a second. It's an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in our hands. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at Data.World, joined by Juan. Hey, Tim, I'm Juan Cicada, principal scientist at Data.World, and as always, a pleasure. Wednesday, middle of the week, end of towards end of the day. Actually, it is very end of the day because today I am in Madrid, Spain. Uh, I've been hopping around every, I think every week now I've been in different places. So yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic to be traveling, to go meeting with people. And, and, and I'm here giving a course on agile data governance uh, at the University of the Technical University of Madrid. And so today we have a guest, our, every week we have a guest, special guest today, because I think it's a topic that we haven't touched at all. And it's, it's, uh, let's say it's, it's directly and indirectly a data topic. We have uh, Kieran Dines, who is the Chief Product Officer at Matillion. And uh, Kieran, it's uh, great to have you. How are you doing? Very good. Nice to see you again, guys. Yeah, good to see you. Fantastic. Now, we're so excited to talk today about information bias, uh, which leads us to our warm-up question. So, uh, well, before I go to the warm-up question, wait, wait, hold on. What are we drinking? What are we toasting for? Let's start with that. I'm like... Yeah, important things first, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I went very traditional, right? And it is just after all, almost it's 10 p.m. where I am. So I thought it was okay. So not, 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 uh, not too early, not too late. Uh, I'm having an Irish coffee, uh, otherwise known as a Guinness. Beautiful. Awesome. I wouldn't taste to make sure it's okay. It looks so beautiful. It looks just such a beautiful beer, honestly. How about you, Tim? Uh, today I'm drinking a uh, Mexican mule. So tequila, some Q ginger beer, and some lime. So that's what I got going today. You got nice. a fancy uh, cup there too. So yeah, my wife got me these nice uh, copper mugs. So they're they're a little hard to keep clean. I got to remember to clean it right after I drink out of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm having actually a Spanish amber IPA, which I don't know who the brewery is, but it's actually pretty pretty nice. So that's what we're doing. So what are, I'm toasting for? I'm I'm back in Madrid. I haven't been here in like two and a half months since COVID. Before I used to come every year. I'm so happy to be back here. It's one of my favorite cities. So I'm cheering for for that. How about you? How about you guys? What about you, Kieran? Um, not traditional for an Irishman, but I'm going to toast the queen tonight just because oh. anybody can do the same damn job for 70 years and still <laughs> and still be doing it. I like hats off to her. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, that is a long tenure, right? Do it. Yeah. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm going to toast that. <laughs> that sounds good. I'll cheers to that as well. Cheers. <laughs> cheers to the queen. <laughs> Long live the queen, right? Uh, Long live the queen. All right. Well, we got our warm-up question. No. So what's the most egregious example of information bias in the wild? You want to go first? Throw that at me. That's a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I, was trying, I was trying to think through what I could say. Um I was, I was trying to think back during COVID, what were the kind of typical things I saw? And it was like, if you're at home with COVID, you're making sourdough, uh, you're putting in your own kind of private bar, and you're basically trying to source a new smoker uh, for your barbecue. And I was like, total bullshit, right? It's like, what did I buy over COVID? Um, put in a bar, <laughs> bought one of those smoker things. Uh, and basically, I've been making sourdough since. Um, yeah, those are the things that kind of come to mind for me right now. I think it's a lot of things that we won't be too political, as we said on this particular show. I think we all kind of know that in politics, there's always a lot of information that mm, on the edge yeah. of basically untruth. Uh, but we said we might avoid that just to, just to keep everybody on side. <laughs> yeah, I, I could go also a bunch of stuff on the COVID side. I don't know, Tim, what, what's on your list right there? <laughs> That's so funny that we all our minds all went to the same thing. I, I actually, in my little notes, I was jotting down, um, and, and I don't think this will go too political, but maybe it is a little dark. Um, uh, like that period of time at the beginning of COVID where people were really pushing that COVID was a hoax. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and the data, the information bias there was, well, do you know anybody who got COVID? And it was like, well, I don't know anybody who got COVID. Well, that means COVID's a hoax. <laughs> and it's like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> That's just an example that came to my mind. Yeah, no, I think there's more stuff on the COVID thing, I would say, too. But anyways, let, let, let's let's get into this. So, all right, Karen, honest, no BS. We talk about information biases. So what are the information biases that you're seeing right now in the enterprise with your customers, with your prospects, with your with your colleagues? And what do we do about it? How do we deal with this? I think one of the things that we see, um, you know, it, certainly in society, right? There's, we, we talked about there's loads of examples that are out there where, you know, we kind of know that some of the facts and figures and kind of information that people use to prove a point eventually kind of go, that's just not true, right? Like, yeah, there weren't basically 100,000 people standing in a mall looking at a, a president of America getting this photograph taken. We all kind of know it, right? But the question I think in the enterprise is, what are the equivalent things that we look at almost every day that the data says one thing, yet you go and kind of talk to that common man or woman in the sales organization, for example, and go, how are those leads that marketing say are so great? And they're like, leads here are crap. You know, I can't use them. Um, I don't even bother. I source all my own leads. I basically create my own pipeline. You know, that type of thing. Um, now, some of that you basically have to take as tongue in cheek, right? Because we know sometimes with sales teams, they can be a little bit kind of like, yeah, never, never thank the, the marketing organization for the great work that they do. But there definitely is something in there's certain uh, an underlying truth or there's a certainly underlying kind of uh, pattern of behavior. We have these kind of analytics that we push out, this data that we use all the time, yet the people who are actually consuming it basically really don't believe that it's of value to them. So I think the question we should always be posing in the enterprise these days is, does the data support some of our hypotheses and conclusions and assumptions? So, for example, um, every time somebody starts a free trial on our website, does that actually lead to somebody becoming a paying customer? And if so, what are the indications within the usage of the product that indicate that? And I think when you start to kind of unpick some of those things, there's always a bit of the, oh, wow, ah, it turns out most successful trials are the ones that the sales teams have actually redirected the customer to the link, not the casual person coming to the website who's come off Google or vice versa. And, it, and I think those are the things that we look at in terms of there's misinformation, there's information bias. I think in our society, it's conspiracy theories. Hope there's not too many conspiracy theories inside enterprises. Hope it's a little bit more kind of like we've got past that one. But I think there definitely is kind of um, sometimes looking at facts and those facts really don't uh, allow some of the conclusions that we see. Um, how to address and how to resolve it, I think we can talk about it. But one thing we try to encourage customers to do is, um, you know, there's two things. I think there's KPIs within a business. And the second thing basically is the customer journey, which we call growth. And I know sometimes people talk about growth as being, well, I'm going to improve a KPI. I don't see growth as that type of thing at all. Actually, I see growth as the combination of multiple KPIs that illustrate how a customer makes the journey through the company. So, for example, they land on the website. You, ha- you don't know who they are. You have a kind of a, a you know, a, an acquisition phase. You have this notion of them becoming activated within the product. Obviously, they get revenue and maybe they expand their use of the product. So that notion that these individual KPIs are part of a journey is one thing that we would always encourage people to do. If you start unpicking your use of data that way, you can quickly basically un- start to really understand, are your assumptions correct? And then you can begin to kind of you know, think about how do I prove those assumptions are correct? Uh, you you started out with something that hit me personally here is on the does the data support the hypotheses and I think that this is something that um, I'm starting now to hear more with like customers that we work with and the prospects and stuff is like uh, what are let me start cataloging not just the questions you have like let's actually start cataloging the hypotheses that you may have and, and why you have the hypothesis. What is the intuition behind that? And then let's go see what is the data that supports it, right? And, 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 and this is this is the scientific method, right? We make observations about the real world and it, because we talk to people, I'm hearing these things, right? I'm like, wait, what's going on? Let's, we make a bunch of observations and then you define a hypothesis that uh, that you then need to go find evidence that supports that hypothesis, and you may have a, a controlled experiment or stuff. I mean, this is the scientific process, and we don't do this in that much as in, in, in business. And I think, wait, this is why not? I'm glad you're bringing this up. I think it's a really important aspect. 
it's interesting. I think some of it comes back to the values, right, within a company. Um, because, you know, there's a, there's a skepticism that's kind of needed to challenge authority. And the authority may not be authority as in a person. There's just authorities and companies that we use, or, you know, we refer to these things as the, uh, the elephant in the room, right? It's like, oh, don't bring that up. That's the elephant in the room. It's like, well, why so? It's like, well, that's because it's a very strong held belief in our, our, in our company that this thing begets that thing. And, and maybe it is. It's the, you know, we think that every, com- every customer starts with a free trial or, you know, we think that every customer basically does this thing. And, and it takes somebody one day to go and say, well, that's great. So could we go and prove that with the data? So there may not be a person that necessarily holds that belief. It might be just this collective kind of tacit knowledge within the organization. So the thing you're undermining is not an individual where you're saying, I think the CFO has got it wrong. They're actually easier enough ones to sometimes sit down with the CFO and go, I think you got it wrong. Let me show you. Where it's actually this kind of a wildly head belief, but nobody remembers who actually owns the belief. I think that's the cultural thing that you're trying to uncover. And, and that's hard to fight against sometimes for people because you're kind of coming in going, hey, I've got this big report, but you're not really sure who the owner of this particular bias is. And you kind of figure out that everybody goes, actually, I thought that was you. And like, I didn't want that. I thought that was you. It's like, no, it's nothing to do with me. And, and you get this kind of everybody going saying, well, now the data shows us something different. Um, I had this great example a couple of years ago. I worked with this giant pharma company. I won't mention where they are because um, that might give it away. But they, they had basically replumbed all of their analytics system. And they had a, uh, you know, a relatively small bill. It was like every month they were paying AWS for Redshift. But they also had an EMR bill. The EMR bill was like, let's say, 10 grand. I'll put a number on it. It doesn't really matter too much. But the thing was is that they were doing data science, big data-esque type of things. It was kind of when Hadoop was very hot. And they were kind of looking at each other one day, going and going, so, all right, let's sit down and go through our bill. Because we're trying to become extremely agile, very sort of uh, usage kind of based in terms of their approach to analytics. And there was this kind of line item at the bottom that was like EMR. And for months it went by that nobody ever asked, what's the EMR thing? And they all um, um, uh, had basically assumed that the other team owned it because like, hey, well, you guys are doing big data. Clearly are using EMR. It turns out it was a bunch of rogue processes that somebody had kicked off one day for a test and had left them running. None of the teams were actually using that technology. But it was kind of this thing as like nobody basically bothered to ask the question until somebody one day said, I, I think you own that. And that should be part of your, your bill. And they went, I don't own that. It's nothing to do with me. And, and I think sometimes you think about these kind of use cases that pop up within, within our enterprises. It's just challenge some of those assumptions, create some ownership around things and ask those kind of dumb questions. Sometimes the answers come back of, oh, I, I never had that belief. I don't really own that. And if the data shows me that something could be done differently. Let's go do that. Let's test it. Let's create a new hypothesis and go do an A-B test against some real users. I mean, that's the culture that you really want to basically introduce into a, in a data company. Uh, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, how do we, how do we surface these biases? Like how do, like, you know, like, for example, you gave that example of like, well, the leads just aren't good. Like is part of it like, well, you need to be brave enough and, and open enough to have a culture where the salesperson's allowed to say, hi, my name is Tim, and I don't think the leads are good enough. And then somebody says, well, why don't you think the leads are good enough? And they say, well, I don't know. <laughs> it I feels like they're not good enough, right? And, and does it start from there? I guess, how do you identify these biases and make them public? Let me add to this is because, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, do we have a culture of like, hey, my name is Juan and I don't trust these leads? Or... Another thing I've been talking to people is like, we need to have some sort of uh, a, day, a a therapist inside the organization who actually <laughs> is the person who starts talking to you. So, so Tim, uh, tell me, how's your sales stuff going? It's oh, like, uh, I do this. So, Karen, so how's your marketing leads when you start doing this? And then it's like, it's a safe space, no names. And then you go off and you share, it's like, I'm hearing all these things and uh, they're they're all conflicting. So let's go figure this out. I mean, is that actually why I think that would be super cool uh, to do. But there are a couple of companies I've come across that have, I I think got this kind of, they they do it very, very well. Now I don't have full visibility to every single thing to do, but some of this is actually documented. So it's not, I'm not speaking at a turn. The BMW team do an amazing thing. They've talked numerous times at Azure about what they do. 
they create a kind of a hackathon culture. The hackathon culture is a little like, I'm going to say America's got talent because I'm going to say Britain's got talent. But you know that TV show? Somebody comes on stage, sings their hearts out, and they give them a buzzer. It's not dissimilar in the way they've designed the data science culture. So people come, they make a proposal, and they try and demonstrate through data a hypothesis and a result. Now, they're pretty smart people, right? Uh, first off, they're kind of like probably all PhDs. Um, you know, they're kind of working for BMW. So you kind of stick those two things together. They're probably smart enough to have people working in the organization. But the culture is you have to prove something out in data before you get approval for budget. And I think that's the critical thing to that. What we've done at Matillion is we've recently um, instigated a growth team. Uh, we have a relatively good, I think, data literate culture. Like Matthew, our CEO, basically was a former BI consultant, as was our chief data you know, a technology officer. And the list goes on and on and on. So like the team was originally a bunch of kind of uh, BI consultants. It lives in their blood. But even with all of that, it was still a case of BI can sometimes be very KPI driven. Whereas we think growth is not a single KPI. It's that kind of user journey. It's the association within the KPIs. And, and that bringing in that kind of just a different mindset, a different kind of thinker, they're very interesting in that they just come back and go, hey, I was looking at the data and I found this. And it's almost like the, the you know, in the, the FBI movies where they had the long lost evidence. And you're like, oh, don't open that drawer. It's like, oh, no, I found the evidence. It turns out they were innocent. You know, that type of joke that's in, in that movie, Naked Gun. And, and the growth team are kind of like that. They're like, yeah, I studied this, this, and this. Do you realize that people who come in with this particular email address, they go here and they never get surfaced again? They're like, oh, wow, really? They go, yeah, I just uncovered that. And there's a lot of that that goes on. So I think between the two things, I think the BMW is they create this kind of, if you want to get investment, you create this hackathon culture. Present your findings, present your ideas, they get invested in. I think the growth culture is another aspect of this. It's not about single KPIs. It's creating an understanding of the relationship between the KPIs. And that's a tricky one because I don't, I don't think like a CFO necessarily always thinks about the relationship of KPIs. They're looking at revenue and a bunch of other KPIs. The, the CMO then is looking at maybe like, you know, uh, leads, lead score. They're looking at other things like pipeline. But again, sometimes those things are singular, independent kind of uh, KPIs. They're all joined up logically in your brain, but there's not a single report that necessarily shows them that way. But growth teams, yeah. that's the thing that they do. And I think if you surface that, then the light bulb goes on for everybody else to go, ah, we should be looking for relationships and data. And, and that's what we should be singularly focusing on. And that's what we've tried to do here. So, so that idea of the single KPI and, and not trying to become over fixated on it, I think is a really hard thing. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the data is almost the me the measure is predetermined ahead of time. Like yep. uh, all, all we care about is SQL sales qualified leads. We don't care yep. how they happen really. I mean, we do, but we don't like, we, we just want to, we want to see that number go up and up and up and up. Like is, is part of growth culture also creating space to, to say, hey, let me understand at a deeper level and look at the relationships in the data as opposed to simply um, just, the, you know, if we make the button orange, is it going to ramp up sequels by 5%, right? <laughs> I wish it was to make the button orange. That would be awesome. <laughs> My work here would be done. Um, but, but I agree with you. I think it is a case of there's like there's three results that we see in growth. We see positive, negative, and ones more often than not, we have no idea. It's kind of like inconclusive. Um, mm -hmm. So creating that space where it's okay to get something wrong and kind of go, hey, make the button green again, orange didn't work. Um, that happens, right? Particularly in website kind of areas that we're, we're looking into. Other ones are just inconclusive. You're trying to look for a correlation between do customers basically spend more with this because they use the community, they take training courses, they have a partner involved. And intuitively, you'd say, yeah, those things are true. But maybe when you go digging into the data, you come back and go, the data is actually inconclusive, but you still think it's true. There's, a, there's an inherent kind of bias in the system that says if a partner works with you to, you know, we're, we're middleware kind of stuff. So the software is, always has to be integrated. It's not, it's not kind of off the shelf, right? It's off the shelf software that has to be customized and, and integrated into a customer's environment. So we know that SIs make that boat go faster for us because we can see the results but maybe it could be hard one day to prove that in the data. And that's always the kind of thing sometimes you're like, is the, is the experiment wrong? Because you still believe in the hypothesis, but the hypothesis and the experiment don't correlate. That's a frustrating place to be for, for growth people.
because they've got to go and run another experiment, another thought exercise. But creating the space, I think, is paramount, that you can just keep running it, and eventually you might just latch upon it and go, we've actually found what the, uh, what the correlation might be. It's these things that indicate expansion within an account. This is a really interesting. Is the experiment wrong because you don't find evidence to support the hypothesis? I mean, um... <laughs> alternative facts. Sorry, I wasn't allowed to say that. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, I mean, it it, it it takes us back to kind of the, the, the scientific method around these things, right? I think we and, yeah. and and then there are people who have the intuition and that's what drives them, and they're trying to find the evidence and support it and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, but 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 I think what is key here is I, I like this example about the growth culture that you're saying it's not just a single kpi so we're not just a, like or if you have a bias over one thing right let's there's other other things around them they're all connected so i love what you say there's yep. relationships in the data there's relationships in the kpis and relationships with the metrics that we're doing and everything has its own context and i think this is the important stuff i mean I, I, this is, the, I mean, people have been following me like this is my, this is the, 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 the drum I'm banging all the time. We, we need to move towards a, a world of not just data for, not from a data first world to a, a knowledge first world where we, where people are first, contexts are first, relationships are first. And, and the data is always going to be there, but it's this knowledge first aspect that's going to give us more than what we are just used to. Because otherwise it's like, yeah, just look at the data and like, wait, but I mean, as you mentioned, like, oh, the, 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 the free trial is working. Well, it's really working because the salespeople are telling the people, telling the prospects to go to the free trial. So it's this, whoever got that break. So that's the connections, that's the context. But if you look at the data by itself, you say free trials are working. And the other aspect, which is, which is I think we need to kind of get a little bit more uncomfortable here as technologists and as data people is like, you got to go talk to other humans. You got to go talk to people and, and just, just looking at data by yourself in a dashboard, whatever, like, yeah, I mean, you can go come to some conclusions based on that, but you're missing that context, the relationship with the people. Yeah. And this is the this is the thing that's missing. And and I'm really glad you're you're highlighting this because I mean to be honest, your 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 evidence that's supporting my hypothesis right now that we need to move towards <laughs> this knowledge first. Yes. Yeah, so, a sample set of one. Um yeah, and I'll absolutely agree with you. Uh it's uh it, I, I would I would I I agree with you. I think that the the there's so much motivation, so much evidence that suggests this particular science approach works. Um, certainly we're seeing it. I think one of the things we do see is we may start with a hypothesis. And in that journey, we may actually get something at the end. It's like either facts don't support basically making a change, but we've never not seen a place to optimize. So we've seen all the KPIs. If we look across things like we've got number of trials, uh, conversion of trials. Do they convert to pay as you go? Do they convert from pay as you go to annual contract? And then we have expansions. So we've got all these different KPIs that we run to ground. But even in the journey trying to prove out something, we will figure out, you know, there's something that we missed in the behavior here within the user. And we could simplify the user experience and we think we'd actually get a better conversion rate. We still haven't proven the overall hypothesis, but we can still optimize an individual KPI. And I've yet to not see that, where it's basically there's always some result that's good for us, even though sometimes the result is inconclusive. So the simple act of kind of looking, as you say, with your eyes open and having a hypothesis-driven approach can still lead to good improvements on a single individual KPI. Even at the end of the day, the experiment comes back and goes, yeah, the theory didn't really work out. You haven't really proven anything. That, that's been our experience to date, albeit not on a massive scale. We're still kind of like six months into this. Um, but still, it, it is basically the thing that we kind of all go and say, it feels good. It is working. And it is creating a better culture of people asking not about a KPI, but asking much more about the customer user journey. It's a much healthier conversation and sometimes a very difficult conversation because you kind of have to hold yourself to account of going, hey, it says that the user experience isn't good. And you're like, yeah, but you realize we're going to have to rewrite that entire module to make it good. And you're like, yeah. It's like, okay, well, that's three months of work and the engineering team to go do that. And you have to then own that. You can't just ignore it and put it under the carpet and go, well, oh, it's too difficult. It's going to take us too long. It's ugly. It's hard. It's like, the data says you should go fix that, go, go fix it. And, and I think that's that notion of creating a very, um, you know, we have a bias for action culture. We refer to it, Matillion. You have to basically have a value system 
that supports the action that I think a growth culture uh, demands. I think it's just, you can't not do it. That is, this is such a valuable conversation and, and an important thing to think about. And, you know, one of the things I, especially this triggers for me is like how leaders in organizations in data, right, can help their company um, combat bias. Um, certainly there's value of that personally, right? But also obviously professionally and as an enterprise. Um you know, and one of the things that I think about is we talk a lot about data literacy, um, you know, as as a space. We talk about, oh, people got to learn statistics. They got to learn how to program. They got to learn, you know, you got to learn how to use Tableau and stuff like that, right? And, and that's, you know, part of data literacy kind of thing, right? But how much should people also be learning about hypothesis testing and, this, and the scientific method? Like, how much is that not a part of data literacy? Or... What about like the types of bias, right? Like, um, uh, I feel bad. I, I, I can't remember the name of, of the book, but um, my wife actually bought this book. That's all. It's like a picture book about all the different types of biases, right? And like, it's got really funny pictures and really funny examples. It's just a very funny book. If I, if I can find it, I'll add the link to this podcast. But, you know, it talks about like no true Scotsman. Like, what is that? Like, what kind of bias is that, right? Uh, so you learn about all these things. Um you know, I feel like nobody knows about these things. Like people aren't thinking about that. So I'll, I'll pass that to you. I'm kind of curious, you know, Kieran, like how much of this is like we need to teach people about bias so that they can recognize it. it it's it's a hard one, right? One of the things that our uh, CEO, Matthew Scullion, basically prescribes, and it's not, he's like, what's the best business book in the world? I know you're going to come to that question later on for me. I, I, will, I will give you a different answer then. But this book, not sure if you can kind of see it, uh, Guide to Information Graphics by the Wall Street Journal. Have you ever come across it? It's a fascinating read, right? Because it comes back to like how to use Excel properly is how I describe the book. Um, like, should you use a trend graph? When should you use a pie chart? And the book is very simple. Like you can read through it in 45 minutes, an hour. But what it kind of goes to show to me is that so much of what we do in terms of, um, you know, the, well, how we use data is the way that we present the data. And then the data becomes obvious as to why is there a big spike on, on Mondays? And you go, there's a big spike on Mondays because the marketing team does their social media campaign at 9 a.m. And you go, ah, is there a correlation between these things? And you go, well, I hope so, because that's our marketing campaign. But to sometimes see all of that data, you might have to basically make it logarithmic because there's too much noise and certain things, or you might have to filter. And, and there's a whole skill in actually just finding a better way to present the facts that you actually have within the data. I think that's really hard. So when I think about data literacy, I really think about that is if I gave everybody just a, a table of data and said, go give me an insight, would they have enough of the business knowledge to come and say, well, an insight for us would be, see this column here, these numbers here are unusual. How do you know that? Well, because I've been in this business for 20 years and I know that's an unusual data set. Like that's data literacy. The next thing would be is, okay, how do I take that data and how do I display it to the executive team or to whatever it might be, some group that says, hey, we need to change the way we're working. And the simple act of getting the presentation, not that it has to be beautiful. Like I do like beautiful things, right? That, you know, you use, you know, a beautiful font, all those things. I just mean the simple act of, did you pick a bar chart? And you go, oh, bar chart, so bad. Like nobody would ever use a bar chart there. You should have went for pie chart or scatter plot or something else. That whole ability to kind of express the facts in a readable way that everybody can understand your, your actual key point. I factor a lot of that data literacy as well. Um, but then there's the other parts of, you know, does people have a common understanding of, you know, what does um, a unit of measure mean for this particular organization? But I still think that the more your organization can present examples and really well-presented examples of how data is being used or uncover an insight, the more people will kind of go, wow, I really liked your presentation. I really understood the journey. I understand the hypothesis you had and why it basically resulted in that particular change. That inspired other people to want to do the same. That's what I noticed. So every Thursday morning at Matillion, in our stand-up meetings in product, we have basically just a 15-minute segment. And the idea basically is, is that Somebody comes along and goes, hey, I was playing around with the trial data last week. Here's what I uncovered. Somebody else might be, we launched a new feature eight months ago. 
Turns out nobody's using it. And we think the reason they're not using it is because it's too hard to navigate through here based on our user behavior. And it can be randomly anything. And all we're trying to do is get somebody to go and say, I did a bit of study. I did some metrics and here's my charts. And it's like just pure stand-up. It doesn't have to be pretty. It just has to be basically an example of an insight you uncovered using data. And, and I think then you get some amazing people who come along and you go, not only is the presentation freaking awesome, it's business impactful. And you're like going, oh my God, where were you? More of what you do. And you get, you get this just kind of a, a warmness, a feeling that basically you're, you're building a kind of a literate culture and each person gets a kick from it. They actually enjoy and are waiting for, I oh, can't wait for Mary to come because every time she does it, she just blows everybody away. You start to almost get like a, um, a meritocracy of really good data literate people and everybody waits for their particular analyses cool. because they just do it better than anybody else but still i think all boats rise within an organization but i do think this book it's just that if you can kind of get to how are you going to display your facts defend your hypothesis There's so much in that book that i think is just of tremendous value for people awesome that's a that's a great recommendation we'll 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 try and get that link into our our follow-up resources here and um you know what you're what you're describing kind of reminds me of you know i've always been a little skeptical of the phrase citizen data scientist but it feels like positive sort of incarnation of what that can be for an organization where people with context are being empowered to actually be sort of presenters and 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 actually bring that context with good data storytelling with good data communication to the rest of the organization. So I think, I think there's a lot to take from that. And um, yeah, well, I'll take just a quick moment here to, to let our listeners know that um, this episode is, is brought to you by data.world uh, the enterprise data catalog for the modern data stack data.world makes data discovery governance and analysis easy, turning data workers into knowledge superheroes. So to learn more, please go to data.world. So, Juan, I know you've been furiously taking some notes here, doing a lot of thinking. What's on your mind now as you, as you think about uh, where Kieran has taken us so far? So, so we're talking about data literacy, and I was having this conversation on Twitter on, on, and LinkedIn a while ago. Of why is it just data literacy? Like, we should actually have business literacy. And, and we need to, as, as business people are looking at the data and they need to understand how to do the data and follow the, the and follow these these guidelines guides information graphics and so forth we need to have the non-business people really understand also what the what how the business works i mean this conversation that we've had today we've talked about leads right and then they go and then we have mqls and sqls and how this goes and like I wonder how many people within an organization who work in data, who work in the product, who create the product, knows how the business works. And and then, by the way, I, I find this fascinating. This idea what you guys have on Thursday standups, right? You do a you study the data, get the metrics. Here are my charts. Fifteen minutes. Let's go do this. I asked them like, how well are 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 your engineers, your your product team, are they well versed in the business such that when they're analyzing that. They actually like, oh, I found these things and oh, this is so weird. But no, there's actually an explanation if you know what's going on in the business. Like when you said, like, why does this chart go up? It's like, well, our business on Monday mornings is this thing. If it weren't, somebody's like, oh, there's a big anomaly. Something Wednesday, something on Monday is happening, right? So I think this, we we are so in a way obsessed of being data-driven. Now the, the word data-driven kind of means bullshit now like everybody's data driven all that stuff right democratize data yeah this is be this is now everybody's saying that right? it doesn't mean anything now but i think that we need to go into this it's a two-way street you got to be data literate yes but i think everybody needs to be business literate just even general business of how of how this stuff works right we talk about leads and marketing and campaigns and the way how the sales process what are your and and also how what's what's the sales uh, how's how does your own particular business work Anyways, I'm, I'm, you know me, I started the rant, so let me, let me I, I No, I absolutely agree with you. I think this is where catalogs help a lot, by the way, because I, I like, I'll give you an example that Matillion is near and dear to our hearts is what is a customer at Matillion? Well, customer clearly is somebody we love and we think they love our product and we kind of meet them and they're great. Um, but when I think about it from a finance perspective, they have a very specific way of measuring a customer. A customer at Matillion has to be 35 days of payment. And the reason we do that is because we're a, um, a consumption usage-based business. So 
you know, in the originals of the, of the business, if somebody used the product for a day and then didn't use it ever again, like you can say, okay, is that churn? You go, no, they were just trying the product. They didn't basically want to stay with us. They could have been just a average user out there. Maybe they were just trying out to see, Hey, I wanted to try out your features, but then you can also get behaviors if somebody gets to 30 days and 30 days is a kind of a weird one because that's a month long uh, kind of cycle in our organization. So we thought, well, 30 days is kind of weird, right? Because if somebody trials the software for free for 30 days, um, which is typical, right? The people use it for four weeks and they cut it off. That can happen in a testing environment. Then it's like you're including people that actually were only testers. They were never going to purchase. So we made it 35 days. Now, we did that just because that's what we do. But if you don't know that you come to Matilda and you're kind of looking through our sales reports or using Tableau or you're looking at a warehouse and you don't know that, you can come and go, hey, I found uncovered like, like 200 extra customers. You're like, no, they're, they're the trial users. <laughs> they're, they're not actually paying. They're, no, they're paying. They're paying. Go, yeah, they're kind of paying for the trial. So there's these very, very clear rules that we've built up. And if you don't know those, then you can go into one of our business systems and you actually need that kind of key point. And then it just takes one of the other, you know, more seasoned kind of BI people to sit there and go, yep. Yeah, great presentation, Juan. I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, great. And they get to the end and go, you probably didn't know this, but actually it's 35 days. And you're like, oh, so my entire analysis here is crap. And you go, it's crap. So the, the catalog is very useful because the catalog could actually encode a human description for everybody in the organization to go, just like a dictionary, a catalog for, sorry, a, a definition for customer, C for customer equals these things. In financial terms, a customer is somebody who does that. You want to see an example? Click here. We can give you a whole bunch of reports, even give you SQL, a Matillion job, and a whole bunch of things and show you how to use it. And, and that helps a lot, but you'll still get people who will come in with a new hypothesis and it should be validated by their peers. And somebody might, as you said, like on a Monday morning, it's perfectly valid for us to see a thousand percent increase in, in Monday morning. They go, oh, why so? It's because the way the marketing engine works. And you're like, ah, okay, I didn't know that. So I thought Mondays were basically a weird day. It's like, no, that's standard working behavior for us. So I, I think it's that, is that the catalogs help because you're being very clear about the rules of the business, as you say, creating that business literacy. The issue, I think, sometimes is how do you create enough business literacy in an organization? And I think this is, if we look at why, just to take a different point, why do you want diverse cultures in a company. And I think some of this comes back to that. If we only hire from inside computer science graduates, you know what you're going to get, right? Because we know who goes in to do computer science in universities and colleges. But if you not lower that threshold, but if you at least look outside that threshold and you kind of go and say, well, we're okay taking in arts majors, people who didn't go to college, people who basically just has an interest in data, who basically come up through, a, you know, a, they went to, college, they went into an insurance company, they bring a whole different kind of mindset than your typical university trained mathematician brings in. Both are good. But I think that's one of the areas that it's like you can you can get that business, better, the business literacy by having catalogs, these types of capabilities, but actually just having a different type of thinker in your organization also really helps where somebody who's not as technical as you, but can I still ask my question? And you go, yeah, shoot, what is it? And they go, well, I don't know about you, but when I buy that type of product, I never buy that basically on a Sunday. I always buy it on a Monday. Why? Because Monday is when all the coupons come out and they make it cheaper. And you go, how did you know that? And I didn't know that. It's like, because I'm actually your target user. And it's those things that I think can really help an organization become more business literate, more data savvy. It's just not having too many of the one type of thinker within the company. I'm so glad that you brought this up. And I think this is, uh, the, the diversity is key. I mean, you bring it up here. Like you put the same group of people in a room and you put a very diverse group of people in a room and you figure out, you give them a problem. Like who's going to come up with different types of ideas, right? Different solutions. I think this is, this is the reason why you have diversity and then tying it back to information biases like this is like, we all have different biases, but if you have one type of group of people, we're all going to have the same type of biases. And if you have different, a diverse group of people, then they start this sharing how they're thinking their biases about yep. this. Um, this is I mean, more things can flourish out of that. We can identify this. So th th this is, I'm really glad you brought up this point. I think this is, yeah. this is actually a topic we haven't discussed that much about diversity here. 
Yeah, it actually makes me think a little bit too about like, um, you know, people are talking a lot about uh, data mesh recently. And regardless of that term, you know, uh, the idea of sort of embedding, you know, the analysts more into the domains and and kind of creating domain ownership. And if you look past all that language, you know, connecting that to what you're saying here on like, you know, if somebody has the business context or they have a broader perspective, you know, in many ways you can, I mean, I'm going to oversimplify here, you know, the analyst, analytics engineer, data engineer, there's a, there's a bit of a mono perspective and a mono skill set there. If that's all you're depending on to like, well, how are you data driven? Well, we have lots of analytics engineers, right? Um, like, like, can we bring that closer to the business and empower the business more to actually own analysis, working with the data, creating hypotheses and testing them? Yeah. So I think I think that's that's interesting to think about and, and an important takeaway for me. And then I have a little bit of a question for you, uh, Kieran. And uh, and and if you want to add some comments, to kind of what I just mentioned, feel free to add that too. But my question to you is, um, you know, so Matillion data integration, uh, ETL, ELT, right? Um, how does data integration play into information bias and you know mitigating it and things like that? Like, what's I'm curious about, like how you'd articulate some of the storyline around that. I think there's a couple of things we, we kind of help resolve. Um, I mean, one thing, obviously, because we're connecting, um, you know, one thing we do is obviously we connect and merge different data sets together. The other thing we're very good at doing in combination with like people like yourselves and cataloging is just examining metadata. So where you can actually look and see if, if a particular data uh, column is of a particular format, that you can kind of go, okay, within that particular column, how many nulls and gaps and other types of values do we have? So I think sometimes we look at data integration as always the merging of different data sets and creating insights. And sometimes it's not that at all. Sometimes it's just simply saying is there are gaps in the particular data set and the underlying values that we use. I mean, the classic one I always come back to is if anybody uses Salesforce and does a, just a very basic extract from sales, best of luck figuring out what the dates mean <clears throat> because they tend to mix and merge quite, uh, quite, quite you know, liberally US dates and European dates and UK dates and a whole bunch of other UTC dates. And, and therefore, even just to get the data set into a kind of like, hey, is that person basically, you know, 21 years of age or not 21 years of age? There's a whole bunch of kind of thing that you have to do with, with that particular uh, business data set from your CRM. Um, so where data integration tools help a lot, I think, is just we're very good at cleaning up data because we can automate that, into, that, that entire process. Very good at enriching data. So you can basically go and say, okay, um, there are gaps in your data set, but that data set would be so much more valuable rather than just having a, a zip code or a, um, you know, a, uh, you know, a, what do they call it in the UK, like a post office code or one of those things. We can enrich that with a GPS location. And that GPS location would help a lot more when we're delivering items and would make our trucks and delivery services much more efficient in getting things to you on time. So enriching data is another kind of key aspect to think of data integration where you can just, again, not fundamentally changing the underlying characteristics of the data, but you're just making it more rich such that better analysis can happen. I think where the real fun starts, though, is how do you actually merge different data sets together to, to, um, to correlate underlying um, uh, relationships? And I bring it back to the growth thing. So I can take any individual data set like CRM. I could do a bunch of analysis on it. But sometimes trying to merge that with the product data is where it can be a bit tricky because the product data might be off in a completely different part of the site. Now, if you've got email addresses and things like that, you can probably get lucky. The problem with email addresses and CRM data is the people who sometimes use software in B2B are not the people that we're actually trying to do cold calling on to sell the product to. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. So you end up in this weirdness of actually the people using the software are the kind of engineering technical types for a product like ours. The people that are making the purchasing decisions are actually in the business side and not necessarily the same people. So you've always got this, how do I correlate the behavior over here of my favorite new customer that I haven't sold to yet? And knowing that actually that's these people here that have got this project that I'm talking to. And, and that's what data integration really should be about is that kind of a, ah, we have a way to correlate those things. We can look at the domain, the location, the IP address, the reverse lookup. Those are the things that we're really, really good at automating. After that, it still requires really smart people, really just good human intelligence, the business literacy that we talked about to kind of say, does this actually make any sense? And somebody goes, yeah, it does actually make sense. We can correlate this entire population of users using our software, who are the engineers, and this project over here to go, how so? Because this is the way we're able to connect those things together. And, and, and I think that's where data integration is. It's limitation, 
but that's basically where it knows its limitation. And I think that's mm -hmm. where the business literacy basically needs to kick in. So let me acknowledge that I'm going to say is now confirmation bias, right? But um, the the you're making still a point, or I'm seeing it as the the integration aspect is like when you're doing ETLing, for example, you you need more knowledge. Like this, you're making more connections to things that are going to help me understand what this what this thing is. So here's a postal code. Let me go connect it to what the GPS code, right, or, or things like that is. And I think this is again the point that I'm trying to go make is it's not just about data like we need yep. to go, we need to move to to this what i'm calling this knowledge first world and and, and like connections right relationships this is going to expand which is giving me more context right and 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 there's people who are who are confirming that this is the right thing given the context yep. of doing right of course, if you don't, you don't have, if you don't do this right then you're like well i mean we're just doing the same thing that we've been doing over and over again right this yep. is the, i mean i say this all the time yep. i definition of insanity yep. right and, and, yeah, exactly. and if we really want to go improve how we're integrating data, how we're managing data, we need to go into this knowledge first world where, I mean, you're just making the point, like if we're going to go ETLing, which is data integration there, let's go bring other relationships to things and more context, more expand this. And, 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 I, and I think people are starting to go think about it more on kind of on what, like enriching the data, but I think it's also kind of on the aspects of, of bringing in right semantics. Like let's think about modeling. We're not modeling yep. things correctly. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, any final words before we go to our lightning round? This is I, there's we one, could talk. Oh, really there's one wacky. There's one wacky hypothesis and idea that we're looking at at the moment. If you've come across engineering at the moment, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff that AWS are doing. It's kind of funky, right? You can just kind of randomly inject that your cluster goes nuts <laughs> in Kubernetes. Something nobody's ever seen before, but you can kind of do those chaos engineering experiments. It's one of the things where I kind of give a lot of consideration. How could you do data chaos engineering experiments that you could just basically take a bunch of ETL and kind of just do stuff randomly to it that it would just go and say, oh, wow, did you see what happened to the ETL? Was it able to recover? It, it may actually come back to what you're saying because confirmation bias is everywhere, right? We, we use the facts to prove what we like. That's what we do. Um, but maybe we need some alternative ways of basically stretching some of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the pipelines that we, that we use to run our analytics and just say, hey, if you just randomize the data and change something or resort it a different way, would you still get the same result? Because you should do. But if you don't, then you might go, ah, there's some absolute information confirmation bias built into the way we can think about our data. And it's like, because the way we, uh, you know, the way our analytics behave when we, when we try to randomize stuff is we, we, don't get the, we don't get the same result. And you should do because it should be the same amount of facts that basically, but, you know, belie the, the same result. So there's things like that that we're kind of giving sort of, Hypothetical situations to products in the future is the type of things about Tillions thinking about. Yeah, that's cool. Inject uh, noise, you know, somebody says here. Exactly that. Yeah, injecting, injecting noise. noise. Inject exactly. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's, nice that's super interesting. I think one thing that comes up a lot on this show is uh, this idea of resiliency, right? And mm -hmm. and and not just resiliency from an engineering or an infrastructural perspective, but maybe also like from a meaning perspective or an interpretation perspective and is the way that we look at our data, the way that we understand our data and build insights off of, off of our data, is it resilient to this kind of noise and this kind of bias, whether it's natural or artificial? And if it can't stand up to artificial problems, then it's probably not standing up to natural problems. Sounds great hypothesis to run to ground, I think is what we should do, huh? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> let's get the data. Let's get it, right? I love let's this. Try it. All right. So let, let's move on to our lightning round, which is presented by Data.World, the enterprise data catalog for the modern data stack. And I'm going to kick it off. All right. Are companies thinking enough about information bias and how it impacts their business? Hell no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, not at all. I, I just literally wanted to make that very explicit. People can hear this. Is like everybody who's hearing, like this is something you need to be start paying attention to. So, be thinking yeah. about it, right? Um, so, second question: um, Is self service data and analytics helping remove information bias, or is it contributing to it and making it worse? Ooh. I think it helps for certain groups. So the data science growth teams that we have need the data. Everybody else needs self-service analytics. And I very strong distinction between the two. 
our data is centrally modeled um, where we basically try to get those correlations of product, uh, the KPIs, and they're basically, because we're a single business, we can do that. And we want those things, like that 35 days to become a customer, want those things very strongly kind of done by a central team of engineers who really know how to manage that. You can do whatever analytics you want on top. Use a catalog to look at what the rules are, but that's what we want you to do. Data science, growth teams, do what you want. Access to the data, knock yourself out, go show us that we're a bunch of idiots. So I, I treat those populations of people differently. We really want everybody to have an agreed set of business rules and do analytics whatever way they want, but the data you shouldn't be changing. Whereas the data science and the, and the, uh, the, um, the growth teams, they can do what they want. So we actually have a very strong distinction between those two. Interesting. So the data science and, and growth teams have more freedom, more leash versus yep. um, self-service in the context of other groups might be more tightly governed. Now we're a single business, you have to recall, right? So we're not a mega conglomerate um, you know, company. So we can do that, but we want yeah, self-service analytics. If you prefer ThoughtSpot or Tableau or you're an Excel person or you know Pyramid or whatever, whatever one Sigma, you can do whatever analytics you want on your tool. You get access to the underlying data warehouse that way. Whereas the other guys might be doing Python and they can do what they want. They can basically plug in at a different level and we're fine with that. All right, third question. Can a semantic metrics layer help address information bias? Like having a very clear, specific, formal definition, what is a customer and so forth? I like to believe yes is the answer to that um, because I think it creates a need then to make sure that semantic layer is well-governed, well-thought-through, and that there's a, hopefully a collective set of people across the business that have agreed that that definition is accurate. That's what I like to believe. And I've certainly seen that in some of the ways that we have standardized some of our KPIs at Matillion that were all agreed that that thing is the way that we define it. And we constantly reinforce that message that a customer is 35 days of, uh, of continuous payment, this, this thing, and you constantly rinse, rinse and repeat those kind of definitions. So I think yes is the answer. But I'm sure somebody out there might kind of go, you know, hey, you need more agility, more flexibility, but maybe their businesses are more complex and they've got more business divisions. We are a single business. We sell products. That's what we do. Um, maybe if our business became more complicated, I might think about differently about that answer. All right. Interesting. Like Tim, last one. All right. Last lightning round question. Um, it's going to be about who? Accountability. Um you know, who is accountable to helping the business identify and uh, act against information bias? For example, is it the chief data officer? Should they add this to their charter? What we do at Matillion is that every single exec is responsible for making sure their business runs with analytics. So if you look at our six-week cadence that we run with the exec team, everybody shows up with a set of charts and those charts have trend graphs and they have an insight uh, bit that we're asked to do. So the chart basically the kind of week over week, month over month kind of cadence that we have for our business. And then the insights are where we call out and go, could be something as, as like, you know, hiring. Are you hiring to plan? And you might just call out going, here's where we're stuck and here's where we're blocked. Or it could be like, are we hiring enough diversity into our organization or enough seniority of diversity into organization? And, and the insights is what you basically are asked to, to call out on. So in that respect, every single exec has a set of KPIs and some will have some growth projects that they're working on. But the accountability, the accountability is for you to stand up and go, I know how to run my business. I know how to build a product organization that's a world beater. And therefore, here's how I run that business. That's the way we do it here. And then every six weeks, we're held to account on that held to account in a very positive reinforcing way. Just to be clear, the culture here is very much encouraging. What are you learning? What's broken and asking questions of each other? Nothing, nothing more, nothing less than that. That's the way we do it. I love it. Uh, everyone should be held to account in a positive way. What are your, what are you learning and how are we getting better? Yep. yep. By, by the way, I just want to hear, this is a, a good, a, note here by a LinkedIn user. It says it's called bias because it will bite you in the ass with the first AS if you don't control it. So BI uh, bite and AS. Yeah. You, have some, you have some awesome uh, listeners out there. They're, they're fantastic comments. I'm going to guess that that's one of our loyal listeners, uh, Mark Kitson, usually uh, 
Hello, Mark. Uh, you're usually listening to. All right, so go. Let's go to our, our our mesh minute. One minute to rant, pontificate about data mesh. Whatever you want, go. I still keep going back reading that blog and still trying to figure out what's the point of it all. Right? Um, I do like Martin Fowler. I've been reading his stuff for years. I kind of grew up on design patterns uh, as a software engineer. I'm a big fan of it, but I'm still kind of going, um, maybe it's because of the way our business runs. We are basically a bunch of BI people that built a software business. That's who we are. And we're really comfortable with a cloud infrastructure that's infinitely scalable. We can stick as much freaking data as we want in there. We can run all of our analytics that we ever needed and still not to need to go to a data mesh. That's us. And that works really well at Matillion. And I think most of the organizations I consult into right now, even the big ones, that they're fine with it. I do like one thing. I like the principle of data as a product. I like that idea. I'm just not sure yet that I need a data mesh to implement one. Is that close? That was that was great. Fifty-seven seconds, and actually, uh, you, you, we've been doing this, and there's people who are. I mean, you're you're pretty critical on it, and 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 I think we come to the same conclusion on like, out of all those things that we hear about data mesh, the data as a product is the one I think that is the, is the big game changer there. It's great bringing, concept because I think it creates accountability and ownership, and allows you to do it either in a cloud data warehousing thing, future data mesh type of thing. I, I think there's lots of latitude as to terms of how it evolves as an architecture. Right. I'm just not sure yet um, that the current prescribed architecture is one that I subscribe to. And maybe some of that's down to operational analytics versus BI analytics, right? Because I think the operational mm -hmm. analytics groups might say it's much more polyglot. They are using databases, whereas most of our business, and if not all of it, it's really coming down to a data lake file system or it's coming down to a data warehouse. And they're very much different things, right? I don't, I don't think you need to kind of go polyglot and have a whole bunch of other stuff. It, it could be the nature of the underlying data challenges that people are trying to solve for. Yeah, and just to wrap this on, but I mean, Tim and I have been working, we have, we've defined this uh, data product ABCs framework, right? We call it accountability, boundaries, contracts and expectations, downstream consumers, and what's the explicit knowledge? And these are the things that you should be considering around a data mm. product. So actually, what I'm now, now curious, I'll... We'll send that to you offline. I'd love to get your input. And uh, I think it's yeah, something I like that, that. We, we're talking yeah, about data yeah. as a product. Like, what does this actually mean? But I like all right, it. Well, Tim, t t t t Tim, take us away with takeaways. We got so much stuff here to yeah. Share. No, this this was a great conversation. So we we kind of started off with like you know what what is what is information bias and how do we combat it right and. Um, you know, you kind of gave this example of the person, the salesperson or whoever, right, who says, oh, man, the marketing leads, what do you think about them? Oh, they're crap, right? And it's like, well, why do, why do you say that? Like, can we identify that, first of all, that you believe this? And then what is the data that supports this hypothesis? D do you even recognize as an individual and do we recognize it as a company that what you're saying right now isn't fact, it is a hypothesis, right? And uh, and we need to understand, does the data support that? And and do we actually have culture and processes in these things that are actually allowing us to investigate in this? Like you talked about this idea of, uh, you know, growth teams and, and the idea that a, a growth culture in your organization may actually be looking at various KPIs and embracing experimentation and playing with the data and using that to inform the rest of the business. So um, there's a, there's a lot of important kind of things to take away and think about how can we change our culture, what we value, what executive teams are pushing down to their organizations, identifying where maybe there's tacit knowledge or collective knowledge that we just take for granted or, uh, that particular groups hold particular biases. Um, and, uh, you, you mentioned about an example with, uh, BMW where, um, they really created a culture where they had to prove, uh, something, a hypothesis with data before they could really get the budget around it and having a culture that kind of rewards ideas that are well-founded and well-supported by data and encourages people to learn how to use the data, how to interact with the data and how to communicate around the data. Uh, and then uh, you talked about chaos engineering in the context of sort of bias and data and um, and sort of data oriented processes. And I think that's a cool idea. At some point, we should we should actually dive into that topic more because I think there's more to unpack on that. But uh, so th those were some of my takeaways. What about you, Juan? 
Well, several here. I think one of the things that you said, you actually quoted, somebody quoted it there in the chat is, is the experiment wrong because you didn't find evidence to support the hypothesis? I think that's a very, very important question to be asking yourself. And we all talked about like, oh, or I brought this up, like, what if we had actually like the, the data therapist, right? In the, in the organization who's trying to figure out and talking to people, safe space, let me go connect the dots, right? I think this is something we should go consider. Uh, uh, and also in our conversations, I mean, bringing it, bringing it back to my world here, like you're validating this whole push that I'm doing about knowledge first, right? Let's look at the data, but you need the people, the context and the relationships to really deal with this information bias. You've recommended this book, Guide to the Information Graphics, right? Get this. We need to have the skills to explain the data, explain why the data. And I really love this example of what you guys do. Every Your Thursday stand-ups, right? You, somebody, 15 minutes, go share what studies have you done about the data, what metrics, here's a chart, get some quick insights. And this is a culture where everybody rises around that. But we did bring up, I, I brought up, like, we talk about data literacy, but what about business literacy, right? Right. Like, here's the data, give me insight, but... Do you actually have the business knowledge for that? Or if you had the business knowledge, well, how will your insights change, right? And then this is where data catalogs are very useful, right? Let me define what a customer is, right? You have a very specific definition was a customer from Matillion. And these are things that you want to go do, not just for, I mean, from information bias, but also kind of like you're onboarding new employees. You want people to like make best use of their time. Like this is why the knowledge is so important. And, and one thing I'm really glad that you brought up is the importance of diversity in a company right the diversity culture right we as engineers we bring in a bunch of cs math folks math thinkers they think in one way but you start bringing other folks from the arts folks who didn't go to college who didn't have a who didn't have a traditional degree but learned in different ways like they bring different mindsets and that helps to diversify the bias and i think that's a very critical aspect right there yeah. i really love that we, we brought that topic um how did we do anything we miss on takeaways Sounds good to me. I think we captured it all. So awesome. <laughs> all right. Throw it back to you. So three quick questions. One, what's your advice about data or life? Second, who should we invite next? And three, let's share with the listeners, what are the resources that you follow? People, blogs, podcasts, conferences, whatever. Uh, advice, I, I, I would genuinely say to people, start trying to do growth within their organization. And we do product-led growth within what we do. Um, it's kind of fun. It, it is fun. It challenges some good assumptions. Uh, it hopefully helps kind of some of the, uh, some of my generation as well, just be a little bit more free form and go, Hey, here's generally what I want you to go do. Have a go at it and see what you can do in the data. It really is just, it's been super rewarding, I think for, uh, for us in terms of what we're trying to do. Um, that's, uh, that's a second question was again, sorry. I was trying to remember the first who, who question. Good friend of mine called Jim Walker over at Cockroach Labs, um, very outspoken, um, wonderful guy, lots and lots of experience in data from master data management all the way through now to Cockroach Labs. Um, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's an amazing product marketer and can talk lots about how to position and do things, but very interesting guy in terms of his knowledge of data and what they're doing at Cockroach Labs. It's a, it's a pretty super uh, product if you follow their, their, their trajectory. Um, you know, I think that's, that's things. And who do I follow? Um, Woodworth, I'm back reading again is Dan Ariely. He's like professor of, uh, psychology and, and behavioral science at, uh, at, uh, Duke university. The reason I'm back doing this, we're doing a bunch of pricing work right now. And I always remember every time I go back and I read his book, uh, predictably irrational, he's got this just amazing use cases of, um, you know, how people behave differently when you give them different pricing options. So I found myself rereading a book that I read probably eight years ago, and I'm kind of watching him again on, on TED Talks. It's just always fascinatingly funny, insightful, and just a reminder how st stupid I am and everybody else is when it comes to pricing techniques. It's just such an irrational thing to go do. Uh, but that's who I'm basically reading at the moment. I'm back reading Dan. Remind us the name of the book again. Dan Ariely is a book called Predictably Irrational. Um, you got to watch him on TED Talks. He is this, if you find the TED Talk that talks about The Economist magazine and the experiment that they do with the print edition, the, um, the online edition, and the print and online edition and the pricing between those three, oh, man, it is just an insight. There is an NBA just in watching that 15-minute segment alone in how pricing and price strategy behaves it's wonderful oh man i, I, I'll, I love to pick it. that up i'm curious now it, i haven't i haven't read brilliant. it in a while 
I, and I love that we're now starting to ask this question to guests because we're going to start getting, getting some great content on this. Um, awesome. Kira, this was fantastic. And just as a quick reminder, uh, next week we have uh, Sanjeev Mohan. Uh, he's a right now independent analyst, uh, and he has been talking to so many different companies, vendors, customers, space, and governance space, and, and yeah. so many space. And he, I, I enjoy talking to Sanjeev so much because he has this really great bird's eye of what's going on. And uh, he's also a very true, honest, no BS guy. So that's next week. Um, and then I think uh, the following week, uh, we're going to be at the Snowflake Summit. We'll see you there live in person. See and you there we'll in person, so yeah. So excited to go see some of you in person over there. And with that, Kieran, thank you so much. This was a fantastic conversation. As always, thanks, Data Art World, who lets us do this, supports us every Wednesday uh, for 40 Catalan Cocktails. And with that, Kieran, again, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, guys. This Cheers. is Catalog and Cocktails. A special thanks to Data.World for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Catalog and Cocktails fan base.